Welcome to Grow PDX here on X-Ray FM. Grow PDX is a live call-in radio show and podcast focused on gardening, farming, community food systems, and more. You know, plants for people, pollinators, and the planet. And now we turn to the host of Grow PDX, Weston Miller of Oregon State University. Good afternoon and welcome to Grow PDX. I'm your host, Weston Miller, with digital producer Diana Suarez of X-Ray FM. Grow PDX airs every Wednesday at 1 p.m. here on X-Ray FM. You can also catch a live video stream of the show at on Facebook at The Oregonian. Thanks for joining us, folks. Hello. Today on the show, we'd like to welcome Nathan McClintock. He's an associate professor of urban studies and planning at Portland State University. Uh, he's going to talk about urban agriculture and community food systems. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Great. Thanks, Weston. Thanks welcome for coming Nathan. in. Yeah. Thanks for both of you. And I bet many of you out there in X-Ray and the interwebs have questions about urban, urban farming and community food systems. We'd love to hear from you. You can post a question on our Facebook feed or you can text us at 971-220-5979. And we're going to get to know Nathan shortly here, but first, a little gardening humor. <laughs> what did the baby corn say to its mom? I'm popping off. Where's my popcorn? <laughs> <laughs> and, exactly. And why did the tomato blush? Because it was so hot outside. It's <laughs> trying to catch up. Because ah! it saw the salad dressing. Oh, oh. no. And one more for you. <laughs> why don't eggs tell jokes? I don't know. Because they crack up. They crack each other up. <laughs> oh, very oh, nice. nice. Oh, one time, one time I dropped a five-gallon bucket of egg whites on myself. Oh, my gosh. It was really... Messy. 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 Yeah. Messy. <laughs> <laughs> eggs, eggs do crack up. Yeah. <laughs> and as is the tradition here on Grow PDX, we're going to celebrate the plant of the week, lavender. Ooh. And I forgot to bring a sample of it. I'm sorry, but Nathan, what do you like about lavender? Uh, I like that you don't have to water it too much once it's established. All right, drought harder, hardy, yeah. and you, Diana. Yeah, I like that it smells nice. I like when I'm walking down the street, I grab a stalk mm-hmm. and then rub it in my hands and smell it like a weirdo. But that I, <laughs> I do the exact same thing. It's yeah. a very friendly plant. It's a plant that that needs to be pet because mm-hmm. when you walk by it, it likes to be touched and it gives off the great uh, aroma. So it's easy to grow. Everyone recognizes lavender as a very common plant. It smells amazing. It's got uses as flavoring, potpourri, salves, essential oil. The bees, the honeybees, the bumblebees all really seem to like it. Mm -hmm. Drought tolerant, as Nathan said. And then um, agritourism. There's an Oregon Lavender Association. If you want to go out to a lavender farm, check out their website. And they also have photo contest and mm-hmm. a painting contest and if you Ooh. check it out they have cash prizes cash to money. paint cool things Whoa. about lavender or take photos mm. of lavender. Check that out friends you can win that money. I would even like ground the lavender and say this painting is made from actual lavender and you know I don't know extract the color of it somehow and it would smell smell nice. I don't know. That's okay, just folks. Okay folks. <laughs> sadly we lost our video feed oh, it looks no. like which is a shame. So Bummer. you're listening to Grow PDX Radio show and podcast. I'm your host Weston Miller of OSU with Diana Suarez of X-Ray FM. Thanks for listening and now it's time to get to know our guest Nathan McClintock. He's from Portland State University is an associate professor of urban studies and planning. Nathan, tell us about your position at at PSU in urban studies. Uh, Yeah, well like you said I'm just an associate professor uh, in the 
Toulon School of Urban Studies and Planning. I've been there since about January 2012. Uh, and I'm also affiliated faculty in geography and in sociology. Uh, and I'm also the co-director of our new graduate certificate in sustainable food systems, which is a uh, uh-huh. cross-campus uh, mm. initiative that um, takes people both from degree programs as well as from, um, you know, post-bac people coming in just from, from outside the community as well. Okay, uh, cool. S- and so, so generally I teach, you know, I teach undergrad classes on research methods. I teach graduate classes on urban theory, food systems, et cetera. Okay, that sounds mm. like a lot of fun, and like that it keeps you pretty busy as Definitely. well. <laughs> You're a ge- geographer focused on urban agriculture. Let's start by defining that term. Urban agriculture Urban agriculture. <laughs> well, how about both? Okay, well, geography is, uh, people often think it's cartography, so there are cartographers amongst geographers, but generally geographies, physical geographers study mountains, rivers, etc. Also, ge- yeah. also difference between geologer. Yeah, not to be Similar, confused with geologists. Yeah, right I on. get those Thank confused you, yeah. as well. <laughs> uh, but human geography is the the sort of social science discipline that studies humans' in interactions with their environment, uh, mm-hmm. and then how people shape space and shape place. So uh, when I look at urban agriculture, that's essentially what I'm looking at. I'm looking at how uh, urban agriculture is part of urbanization processes, how it fits into the built environment, how the economy, how politics, etc., um, make our urban agricultural landscapes, and how those urban ag landscapes shape our cities. Does that's that, that's cool. Go ahead. Yeah. Does that apply to uh, like community gardens that we're seeing crop up nowadays? And yes. Yeah. So thank you. I forgot to define urban agriculture. Yeah. I, <laughs> I consider it generally. Um, I define it as the production of food. I mean, people would say like, well, what about marijuana? What about lavender, etc. I'm primi- primarily focused on food production, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I would I would say there's residential urban agriculture, home gardens, there's community gardens, there's uh, market gardens or urban farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so so for for commercial purposes. So that would put the whole kit and caboodle in. There's a wide range of food production activities going on in the city, usually focused on fresh produce Mm -hmm. or cut flowers or other sort of higher value type crops and typically not commodity crops like wheat or um, things that take a lot of space to grow. And I would add what <coughs> quote unquote urban livestock in there as well not mm. livestock in the sense of giant troops of cat of yeah, cattle herds of cattle but yeah ducks, chickens yeah. bees chickens et rabbits ducks, as well For cool mm-hmm. yeah. now um, as diana mentioned urban agriculture is popular here in <coughs> portland and other west coast cities what are the opportunities and challenges to grow food in urban areas I would say that the biggest opportunity right now is just a, a huge kind of social movement right around it. You know, huge, huge popularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, over the last 10 years, it's just kind of exploded again you know, for the first time that we've seen since the 70s and early 80s. Um, and so I'd say that's a big part of it. And so therefore, cities are very supportive of it. And so that, that creates a good opportunity. In terms of the, uh, the biggest obstacle, I would just say, is, is the sort of... St- is the is the economy right? It's it's yeah. the urban land values and, and, and land markets right. So yeah. you can make a lot more money growing you know a block full of condos than you can a block full of kale. Yeah. And that's particularly true on the west coast where property yes. values are really high. Bit of a different story in Detroit mm. and Cleveland and other Rust Belt cities where exactly. there's vast swaths of urban area that they're developing yeah. back into agriculture or farming. Because it is the highest mm-hmm. value use of land at that time, right out there. But then, what you find is often that as that as as the sort of city or neighborhood comes back to life uh, economically, then all of a sudden you get this contradiction, the, the, this tension when that land has now too valuable, and then mm-hmm. it's going to be worth more uh, yeah. to bulldoze it and build a condo. Yeah, and why do you think that this trend is taking off so so f- quickly in, on the West Coast as opposed to the East Coast, which is faces as many urban population, er- you know. 
I guess I wouldn't say that it's 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 taking off any more here than it is in there in those places. I would say that you know maybe we have you know especially in California, there's definitely like the the kind of foodie culture that that really kind of came out of California cuisine, and probably also the weather. Absolutely, we can grow things for a lot more of the year uh, than we could, for example, in in the Northeast. But I'd say that the urban ag movement is pretty much you know across. It's across across North North America, definitely, and probably into Europe Europe and. Australia and other places yeah. as well. So it's a good thing that people are, are growing food. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of ancillary benefits that come along with growing food. What are some of the positive social aspects of people growing food together in cities? I would say that, I mean, really, I would say that that's in some ways urban agriculture's greatest benefit is just the kind of community building uh it's its ability to build community to bring people together over over food over a, yeah. a garden bed bringing people from different uh ethnic or racial or or, or you know national backgrounds bringing mm-hmm. together people of different ages you know a lot of older people have a lot you know a whole lifetime of experience and they're you know can get together and share stories with people who are you know in their teens or 20s who are just learning I would also add just the some of the public health benefits. So getting people to eat fresh produce mm-hmm. is a really good thing. Absolutely. Getting people to do weight-bearing activity mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a really good thing. Getting people to be outside and touching the soil and mm-hmm. getting to pet the lavender plants Absolutely. are all really good side benefits of urban agriculture as well. Yeah. And educating people about, I mean, there's the science education about how plants grow and soil, soil works, et cetera. But I think also just educating people about where food comes from, what totally. goes into food production. Yeah, I think it's especially important as we're talking about global warming and just how things like our, you know, our landscape is changing and how things may not grow the same way in the next couple of years. If we're Mm -hmm. really conscious about how things grow, then maybe perspectives will begin to change. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I see it changing with my kids already because they're being exposed to it at a very young age. So hopefully maybe before their generation, but if not Mm -hmm. some, (laughs) sometime, you know, someone will have some leadership to really address the major problems we have in the world. And in the meantime, urban agriculture is a great way for people to at least have some of their life, you know, within their control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Also, I also like the the social aspect and there's a social landscape that is created when, when people are, are uh, you know, gardening together and going to these community gardens and trading, you know, their tomatoes because one tomato plant just produces so many mm-hmm. tomatoes that I can't eat them all. So I'm going to trade with my neighbor who grows lots of carrots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's as equally as important as the physical space uh, of gardening. But yeah. Nathan, how does Portland compare with other West Coast cities, Bay Area, Seattle, Vancouver, in terms of urban agriculture? I'd say we have the same, uh, you know, sort of impetus. And, and I would say, like, as a social movement, you know, there's the, the, the same amount of interest. You know, all, all of those cities, will, you know, San Francisco, et cetera, moving on up the coast, I would say, consider themselves to be sort of green cities or sustainable cities. Right. And so I think urban agriculture enjoys a lot of support from the city, but also just sort of from a, from communities that really kind of value green thinking, environmentalism, uh, et cetera. And so I'd say there's a lot of similarities in that level. I moved here from the Bay Area, from, from living in Oakland for seven years Me while too. I was at a Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was at, when I was doing my grad, uh, my, my PhD, I was in the Bay Area. and Where um, you at, Cal? I was. Go Bears. Yeah, I'm uh, also a bear. Yeah, we got two, <laughs> yeah. two bears in the yeah. room. Okay. <laughs> and I'm from the Bay Area, too. Oh, so so yeah. we, have, we have Bay Area representatives here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would say that there, when I was doing my research there, I was really, I would say that kind of food justice and the social justice aspects were the one of the primary drivers sure. of a lot of the for efforts I saw, particularly in, in Oakland. Um 
And when I came to Portland in 2012 or to that late 2011, I was really sort of struck by an absence of that kind of food justice mobilization around urban agriculture. And it was much more about the sustainability, the environmental concerns, um, self-sufficiency, et cetera. I have seen a change in the in the six years that I've been in Portland and five and a half years in Portland really working on urban agriculture. I have seen actually an evolution more towards those social justice concerns. Uh, and then in Vancouver, uh, I would say, um, you know, we, th- there's perhaps a little bit more emphasis on on the commercial aspects of of urban agriculture right yeah. what's the name of the project there that's really there's a prominent. group called the um vancouver oh the the soul food farms, soul food is, farms. Is, the, is the big sort of yeah. poster child of, of yeah. a, a beautiful agricultural landscape in front of high-rise condos it's, but it's all <laughs> container growing basically container growing but is, it is a social enterprise you yeah know, they're looking at you know job training for yeah. uh for folks so. have, have you heard or do you know much more about like vertical growing i've heard of people, you yeah, know, I would say that's buildings. another. I mean, yeah. it's a pretty fuzzy term. Some people would okay. call a greenhouse on a roof vertical farming, sure. uh-huh. and then, the, then the, you have the sort of sci-fi fantasies of glass towers uh, growing hydroponics. But don't I think there's a capacity to right. produce a lot of food in those formats. The setup costs are really, right. really high because there's a lot of equipment involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but the technology is there to Absolutely. do it and to scale it. If we, right. if there were economic imperative or right. motivation to do it. Nathan, how'd you first get into the field, so to speak, of urban agriculture? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it's because I, well, I was in uh, Peace Corps in Mali in West Africa uh, about 20 years ago. And there, and then traveling, and then working for some NGOs in different parts of the world, in Senegal and um, in South Asia, um, and then traveling around in Latin America. I was always struck by how in the cities, I always saw agriculture. I always saw people herding goats down the street. Mm-hmm. I saw corn growing in the like three feet of space in between the road and a building. Okay. Um, I saw people, you know, fishing water out of irrigation dishes to uh, ditches to, to water plants. So I was just sort of fascinated by what I had sort of always considered this rural land use together with very bustling urban areas. And mm-hmm. so that's that's where I got that interest from. And then when I moved to the Bay Area, there was such a vibrant uh, urban ag scene in mm-hmm. Oakland that I kind of drew the connection. Yeah, there. food deserts are something that we talked about a lot at Berkeley mm-hmm. and a term that I am starting to see crop up more here in Portland mm-hmm. is Nathan, Nathan why don't you go ahead and yeah. define what a food desert yeah, is. Yeah, so a food desert is a, a term that kind of came to prominence, you know, in the last decade or so about areas with without re- uh, readily available access to healthy and nutritious food. So it's, a, it's a, you know, areas that have had dis- long-term disinvestment, so supermarkets closed, you know, decades ago. And so a lot of times the food is only... Um, the food is only sort of available from corner stores, quickie marts. That said, it's a, it's a term that's really kind of come under a lot of critique yeah, in recent mm-hmm. years yeah, yeah. because <laughs> what it does is it boils the problem down to a solely a spatial problem. So you okay. can look at a map and say, hey, there's not a supermarket, or let's put a garden there or a supermarket, and therefore we're going to solve the problem. But right. as we know, mm-hmm. hunger is not a question of the physical location of food access. Yeah. It's really about how much money people have and can they access food by right. purchasing. Right. So yeah. it's a useful construct, but it's not the only way right. to think about it. We, we can't stop there. It's a good way to sort of suss out, um, you know, what neighborhoods have particular amenities and benefits, but we can't use it necessarily as the as the sole solution. Right. Yeah, like I, I in my hometown, we I grew up in a low-income area, and all of the more popular grocery stores that you would think of, you know, like Ralph's, Albertsons, Pavilions, they all moved out because the mm-hmm. insurance rates were so high that you know nobody wanted to pay the insurance right. rates for those markets. So now we have these like low-income bodegas that are, are not bodegas, but like 
almost like ethnic markets mm-hmm. that are good but not necessarily bringing the best produce that the mm-hmm. other markets were able to bring and it, it's a huge problem you know i have to go two towns over to shop next now when i'm home and hmm. yeah it yeah that's neither here nor there great perspective <laughs> diana thank you you're with grow pdx radio show here on x-ray fm and we are talking with nathan mcclintock of psu about urban agriculture and more Nathan, another component of your work focuses on community food systems. Mm-hmm. What does this term mean exactly? Could you kind of walk us through an example? Yeah, I would say community food systems are really, you know, sort of an alternative to the, um, I guess you'd say the corporate food system, the global food system that we all currently feed ourselves from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would be, you know, sort of a sustainable, and then I would add the word just uh, network of producers, distributors, processors, retailers, and then also kind of waste recycling, um, kind of working together. I I would emphasize the word community uh, less about, again, coming back to this question of local, Mm because I don't want to sort of, I don't want to emphasize the fact that local solely makes for a community, you know, a just and sustainable food system, Mm -hmm. but rather community control, right? And Mm -hmm. community buy-in, community uh, participation in making decisions. So it's really kind of more a question for me about food sovereignty. Okay. uh, And and that's what sort of defines the parameters of this the cooperative groceries would be a good example of a community-based system where people have a vested interest in the right. outcome of the, the store. And but of workers and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's the other kind of piece. And, and again, to sort of push back against it just being local, the solution, there's plenty of lo- local industries and, and farms, for example, that are exploitative, right? Yeah. That, that don't necessarily follow labor, the best labor practices, et cetera. So we shouldn't complete, conflate local with with good and, and global with bad, but rather thinking about how do you how do you um, you know make all of those things work in a way that's that's thinking about both the environment as well as the social benefits. Mm-hmm. I love it. So not conflating local with good. So local is not necessarily good. It's a distinction, mm-hmm. but really just and environmentally responsible is what we're right. going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Nathan, on your website, urbanfood.org, you say pathways to a more just and sustainable food system are rarely technical in nature. More often, they're social, entangled in power structures, mediated by a suite of interconnected factors, the political economy, race, class, gender, among others. Go more into this statement. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think we, like you were talking about vertical farming, we have the technology, we have the knowledge base, we know how to grow things sustainably. We know mm-hmm. how to have an incredible, an entirely sustainable food production system, right? The obstacles are very much political obstacles. You know, we, we all know, especially in Portland, you know, about the, the power of corporate lobbying and, and decide, you know, that, that's placing profit ahead of what's best for people, right? Mm-hmm. Then p- placing profit ahead of our health and, and, and workers' rights and things like that. So, so clearly, you know, we have these these social structures, power structures that are ultimately what are mediating the the advent of a more sustainable and just food system. Yeah. That said, I think it's very easy for us to kind of demonize like the global corporate system, and, and we do that all the time in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, and we sure do. Yeah, we sure, you know, so, so so it's very easy to do that. But I think what what I'm also really interested in, having moved here from the Bay Area where social justice, food justice was so prevalent, moving here to a very progressive town or city such as Portland, 
there's lots of uh, social relations and power structures that we perhaps overlook, right? So we had there's a long history of racism in this city. Um, there's you know uh, there's an overemphasis oftentimes on environmentalism and and sustainability that silences often concerns for social justice. I would say that in Portland the conversation's beginning it's to shifting, change right. mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. Um, but you know, for example, like the North Williams Bike Corridor, people were sort of saying things like, hey, well, it's just about bikes. You know, it's it's not about anything else. But clearly people were upset from right. a long history. You know, the, the African-American residents, long-term residents of the neighborhood were upset from a, a long history of displacement and, mm-hmm. and having their voices silenced. And often what you find are... Um, you know, in public uh, citizen participation uh, arenas, you know, for the city, et cetera, you get the kind of usual suspects. You get very vocal white, um, you know, generally white homeowners who come and drown out the voices of perhaps historically more marginalized people, right? And so that's right. that's an example of a kind of power structure that exists, that, that, that very much mediates who's at the table when it comes to thinking about food systems. Yeah, and it's really, really about, you know, home ownership I think I think that's one of the pieces yeah yeah. absolutely Nathan what are some of the theoretical underpinnings of your thoughts there on these power structures yeah I would say that you know I often engage with a kind of subset of, of research that people call critical food studies and a lot of critical food studies draws on the work of you know critical race theory and other sort of aspects different social sciences that really look at uh, in this critical food studies literature, there's a lot of work right now on the kind of whiteness of the food movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in Portland, it's very apparent. But a lot of that work looks at how oftentimes communities of color, et cetera, may feel excluded from from um, different kind of alternative, quote unquote, um, food systems. Um, mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's, you, you, you often find, and I actually saw this quite a bit in Berkeley, lots of well-meaning people who want to, you know, fix the food desert or go in and save uh, the sort of uneducated people from what they're eating. and But they do so in a way that's not necessarily respectful, but that comes across sort of more as a kind of missionizing, right. uh, missionary kind of thing where ultimately just recreates those kind of colonial relationships of, mm-hmm. of dominance and power. Mm-hmm. Right? Change from above rather than from Absolutely. Within. So right. that's that's an example, I'd say, of the kind of you know theoretical work that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. And yeah. how can disaffected urbanites use this thinking to improve their world via food? Yeah. I mean, I would say that in a place like Portland, where we often pat ourselves on our back by how progressive we are, we, we take <laughs> the opportunity <laughs> to be a little bit reflexive. For those of us particularly in you know positions of power, and, and I say that as a white male, you know, and so I have a histor- uh, social place of power, right, that that often I could easily go let that go unchecked and just go into a room and start talking and mm-hmm. and that's what happens and so I think mm-hmm. it's really important to create spaces for um, you know historically marginalized people to to have a voice for women to have more of a voice and so I think that's a that's a key piece of of improving the food system is actually kind of huh. backing up and creating spaces for a more uh, diverse audience to, to, yeah. to start by in. listening then start by listening that's absolutely great. yeah and that's a, an approach that I take in my life that carries over into radio and gardening as well just give people the opportunity to talk about what they what they want rather than uh shoving what we think they want mm-hmm. down their throats Absolutely. which happens a lot yeah um, and yeah. nathan how can planning by cities and other government agencies help or hinder this process yeah it's a great yeah it's a great question i think you know we do planning tends to now uh create lots of spaces for community participation and and in that 
kind of collaborative planning process. But as I mentioned, what happens often is you get the same usual suspects at the table. Um, mm-hmm. And so a good example is actually happening right now in Portland where there's a shift away from sort of the traditional um, neighborhood association, you know, representation in some of these meetings and more mm-hmm. to a, uh, you know, making sure that underrepresented voices are more part of those conversations. Uh, so I'd say that's the biggest thing that a city can do is to really do the outreach to make sure that people aren't alienated after their first uh, interaction with the city so that they actually do come back and participate. And sometimes that means actually having, you know, financial uh, benefits. We, we uh, having worked in Oakland, I saw this, you know, firsthand where um, when we weren't providing a stipend or kind of a per diem or something, then we just had people who were on the clock coming to meetings, right? But if we actually right. provided, provided food, childcare, child and care. a small amount of per diem, people who were there on their own time and their own dime would actually participate. And it yeah. fundamentally changed the conversations that we're having. So the it's not just passively encouraging, it's actively encouraging yeah, and suppo- to participate. Yeah, supporting people who wouldn't n- normally be doing right. things out of this zone so that they feel mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, they, they have all the necessary things that they need to enter that space yeah, and feel and comfortable. providing them those material yeah, support set, to do so. Yeah, set yeah. people up for success, but also let them learn mm-hmm. on their own. Totally. Yeah. Nathan, you already mentioned a little bit about your work with the Peace Corps in Mali. How does your experience there inform your work in North America now? I would say, I mean, it's sort of segue from what we were just saying about um, not doing top-down intervention. I mean, I, I would say that that's the biggest thing that I learned there was, uh, I mean, aside from just what it's like to live in a tiny village of 250 people without electricity and water and, and what an, a real agrarian village is like, yeah. um, I would, which actually, you know, that taught me a lot about growing food, et cetera. But I would say really it's about thinking about kind of quote, quote unquote, farmer first and people first Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and thinking about what people's needs are, placing what people's needs are first, rather than kind of coming in, putting the cart before the horse, and coming mm-hmm. in with a pre-existing solution. And, and so I would say urban agriculture is often one of those pre-existing solutions. We right. go into a community say, hey, we're going to build a garden, but perhaps that's not actually what is necessary or even wanted. So I think it's being kind of sensitive to that. Yeah, I, I had a, a similar conversation with somebody who grows coffee or who owns a coffee shop and is working on really being intentional about, you know, making sure people are protected from the people that he's buying coffee from are farming sustainably. And Mm -hmm. he goes to these places and talks to farmers who have never even tried the coffee that they're, you know, the beans that they're Mm -hmm. harvesting. And he's just, you know, really passionate about going back to the source and saying, you know, this is where the food comes from. And these people need to know, you know, what, what their product is doing and what it's doing in the world. Mm -hmm. And then us thinking about how, how that money trickles down because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people in, in line to, to get money from that one bag of coffee and mm-hmm. we need to be be fair and equal to everybody in that line. Yeah. And coffee is a can of worms, so yeah. to speak. Oh, I hear ya. <laughs> oh, oh, no, it, it is what makes modern life possible. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it while you can, You got me can, here this folks. morning. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, what's your favorite garden crop that does well in urban areas? I would say carrots to me are the most satisfying thing. Huh. And Carrots are a <laughs> great crop in terms of their, once you get them germinated, they're relatively easy to yeah. grow. And then um, you can keep them in your fridge for keep months. Keep them in the fridge for a long time. What's your they're favorite really part? Tasty. Is it the, the crunch of it or the taste of it? All of the same. <laughs> I think it's also <laughs> just this giant 
these giant tap roots just yeah. throughout your garden bed. They're they just, just pretty amazing. I'm going to go ahead yeah. and add uh, potatoes uh-huh. to the list. Right yeah. now I'm eating new potatoes from our farm project out in Southeast 60th and Duke. Very nice. And uh, potatoes that were harvested this week. And last yesterday I made some uh, roasted potatoes and my son was like, these are the best potatoes oh. I've ever had. Nice. That's oh, a, that's, that's amazing. The ultimate <laughs> little oil, salt and pepper. That was all that went into I, it. I'm going to so. go home and great. dig mine up now. <laughs> yeah, the, those yeah. new potatoes, just yeah. you put them straight in yeah. uh, without letting them cure and they're just really awfully good. Cool. Um, as part of your, I think, under your graduate work at North Carol in North Carolina, you looked at compost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's your master's What's your work. advice for urban gardeners and farmers regarding compost? Uh, aeration and water. Those are the two things mm-hmm. that I would say. I mean, I don't compost anymore. I stick it in the green bin, right? But um, let, let me just right. go on that. So, uh, yeah, for folks who are in the city of Portland and have yeah. access to the green bin, please just put your food scraps there because mm-hmm. it's so much easier to have that stuff composted municipally rather than mm-hmm. individually. And, and you can way, put meat scraps and eggshells and things that might not break down if you do it yourself. And what that about? way you also are not attracting rats, exactly. which I know are a big problem with compost piles. What and about then, dairy um, products? Can dairy, dairy products, products, they can go in they the green can go bin, but in not in your own bin. But generally you want to keep things that are going to smell, that are going to attract vermin away. And mm-hmm. then what you said about aeration and water is key. Making compost is a lot, a lot of fun. It's a high art, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you take your greens, your browns, water, and mm-hmm. you provide aeration, and you come up with compost, but it's going to be different every time you make it mm-hmm. based on what mm-hmm. you add in terms yeah. of the materials the, and how you treat it. The one thing I would add, so I dug up a bunch of my grass to put in plants and garden and stuff, and, and that turf that I dug up uh, was amazing, turned into amazing compost. So, it, it, Turf compost yeah. is good stuff. Nathan, what inspires you the most about your work in urban studies and planning real fast? Uh, I think just looking around at the environment and thinking about all the different things that have gone into it. It adds mm-hmm. this whole other dimension, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about the labor and the relationships and the history of, of anything you look at, whether it's a yeah. street or a garden, and, and, and sort of thinking uh, to those other dimensions. To yeah, me, just beyond that product of, and, yeah. and its form in front of me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's probably the most inspiring thing. There you go. That's been Grow PDX on X-Ray FM for this week. Thanks to Nathan McClintock from PSU for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Thank you. The program is produced by Diana Suarez and Will Romy of X-Ray.